The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to be looking at uh, what's generally known as the intermediate state, but what I'm choosing to call instead from now until then. Um, then being the more famous aspects of eschatology. Things like, uh, oh, you know, the second coming of Christ, uh, the rapture, the antichrist, the great tribulation, all of those things. Um, but because, as we learned last time, we are presently in the end times now and have been since the Lord came um, 2,000 years ago, this is part of, of our study. And so what's going to happen uh, both uh, to us individually or to individual believers from now until um, those more uh, well-known aspects of eschatology and what's going to happen in the world are both uh, just valid topics for us to look at. So that's what we're going to focus on tonight. It's a 12-page outline. I just know from past experience there's no way we're getting through 12 pages. I average about seven to eight pages a Wednesday evening, so, but we have to get through it because there's great topics uh, to come uh, next. So uh, I think it's going to be a good study. I don't know that we'll get to every detail um, in here, but I hope that you'll have a good sense. I want to say this just about the intermediate state. Um, this is not a, uh, a, an area in which there's a lot of scriptural evidence. Um, so there's been some creative thinking, um, especially by people in other denominations, Roman Catholic Church, etc., uh, about the intermediate state, which are not supported in scripture and which I'm going to refute at the end of our time here. But uh, there's also a lot of, I think, uh, overly precise thinking about, uh, you know, aspects of the intermediate state and, and differences between uh, paradise and heaven and Sheol and Hades and all that. And I'm just not going to be able to get that precise because I just don't think the Scripture is going to bear that level of detail. There are reasons for that. We could say, you know, why isn't there more in Scripture on the intermediate state? Um, we just have to believe that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, that, that we didn't need any more than this. Some have speculated that the apostles that were writing the New Testament all believed that the Lord would return in their lifetime, and so they didn't spend a lot of time talking about the intermediate state, and all of that may be true. But that's uh, what's in front of us uh, tonight. So we're starting with where we are now, and where are we now? We are in the end times. That's where we are. As we've already established, we are in the end times and have been since the Lord came. In Hebrews 1, 2, it says, in, the, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These last days, written uh, right there in the first generation of Christians. I don't know when the book of Hebrews was written, but uh, I think definitely before the uh, destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So uh, as of 50 AD, uh, we were in the last times. Or as it says in Acts 2, 17, in these last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. That's the Pentecost uh, the quotation of Joel on the day of Pentecost. In the, in, in the last days, God says he'll pour out his spirit. And then again in 1 John 2.18, Dear children, this is the last hour. So we're just trying to find ourselves on the eschatological map, and we are uh, presently in the end times. Uh, another uh, phrase that's important in the Bible is the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24, uh, Jesus said this, uh, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so, uh, you know, there's all kinds of interpretations of what that phrase means. But uh, it seems to me as I put together, uh, you know, that verse and what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 about what's happening with the Jews and the gospel 
and uh, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. I think it has to do with the fact that God's saving focus right now is primarily on the Gentiles uh, as evidenced by the fact that that great, I think, revival turning of the Jews to the gospel hasn't happened yet. So this is the times of the Gentiles, and the idea there in Luke 21 is that Jerusalem is in some way under the sway of Gentile authority, even though it's part of the promised land. Uh, again, another way to designate the phrase uh, phase we're in. Um, another uh, uh, differentiation of time is this uh, expression, the present age and the age to come. Uh, dispensational theology uh, has uh, it talks about the church age and especially looks at the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and says that each of those seven uh, churches represent a different uh, era or phase of the church age. Um, and, uh, you know, others don't see that necessarily in those uh, letters, but think that those letters to the seven churches are, are true of, of churches in every age, that there's always going to be faithful churches and persecuted churches and, and lukewarm churches, etc. So we can talk about that in due time. Um, but I think at least this much we can um, uh, see two different eras uh, in redemptive history uh, from this present time looking forward, and that is the present age and the age to come. So we are in the present age now, uh, and the age to come, I believe, is the eternal state. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 10, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me uh, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there's the division Jesus gives us, this present age and the age to come. In other words, if you make physical sacrifices for the gospel, God's going to bless you. You're going to find uh, a wealth of hospitality and of involvement in people's lives, other Christians. Uh, anyone who's been on mission trips, you've met Christians from other, uh, other lands, you've found this to be true. These are brothers and sisters in the faith. They open their homes to you, etc. That's what Jesus means. But again, note the, the phrase, in the present age and in the age to come eternal life. Or again, Ephesians one twenty one. it says there that Christ is seated at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So we've got the present age, the one we're in now, and we've got the age to come. Different other verses, Luke 16, 8. Uh, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is the parable of the dishonest steward. Uh, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. So again, they are better at dealing with this present age, it seems, than we are. It seems that way. That seems to be what uh, the Lord is saying there. In 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So there's a wisdom of this age, of this present time. Many other verses could be multiplied talking about this present age. Ephesians 2.2 uh, says that, we, that uh, at one time when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, we followed the ways of this world, of this present age, this present era, uh, which is under the sway of the devil, etc. So let me just describe what life is like for us. Now you know because this is your age. You, you, you know what it's like now, but let's just describe it in terms of some biblical um, um, mile markers. Uh, life from this point forward is going to continue outwardly like it has from the beginning of history. Uh, marriage and childbirth will continue as they have. A couple of verses that teach this, Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? 
Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, there's kind of a sameness to life. It's, it, this is what it's like. This is the way it's always been. There's been progress. There have been inventions. There have been buying. There's been buying and selling. There's marrying and giving in marriage. There's, there's all of these things. And, and the scoffers are going to say, you know, Jesus is never coming back because this is just what it's always been like. It's always been like this. Uh, that's what they're saying. It's the sameness. And Jesus will teach this also in Matthew 24 about his second coming. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in uh, heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be uh, at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So let's just say from, from now until then, then being the coming of the Son of Man, there's going to be a sameness to life. People will, will just go on as they always have. They're going to be shocked by the second coming. That's the idea. They're not going to expect it, just like in the, the days of the flood. You know, was it their turn or, or was it their day to go mock Noah? No, no, they did that last week. So they're just going to buy, uh, you know, at the market and go about their business. And suddenly it starts to rain. Uh, they, they weren't expecting the flood, even though Noah warned him. He was a preacher of righteousness, it says. And so he warned them that the flood was coming, I believe. They just disregarded his warnings. The human race has been fairly warned. The Lord is coming back. Uh, he's told it right in Scripture. The testimony is there. We don't, we're not getting another warning. He's coming back. He's going to come like a thief in the night. So what that's going to mean is that from now until then, it's just going to go on kind of like it always has. And people, there's going to be a sameness. We, the believers, we can see through all that and say, no, there's other things that are happening here. And we can see the, the, the signs of the times and we can see what the Lord is doing, but they're not seeing it. And they're just going to go about, about their business. They're going to go to the mall the day before the Lord returns. You know, they're going to buy stuff that they're not even going to need because um, things are just going to go on as they always have. People are going to get sick. They're going to get hurt and they're going to die. Revelation 21.4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now that's prophetically on the other side of it, in the, in, the, in the age to come, looking back. But what does he say? The old order of things, the, 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 the first nature of things has passed by. What is the first nature of things? Death and mourning and crying and pain. That's what we have now, and you know it. And the older you are, the better you know it. That's what, that's what this is. It, it, this is the era of death and mourning and crying and pain. Uh, that's what we're living in now. Creation is groaning to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, it says in Romans 8. Uh, nations are rising and falling, grabbing the stuff that people have fought over for, for millennia. The same gold, same silver, the same stuff, the same land. They're fighting over it and they're going to keep fighting until the Lord returns. The nations are going to rise and fall just as they always have. There's going to be warring and rumor, rumors of war. There's going to be uh, people prospering. There's going to be others suffering. That's just going to go on. That's what it is. Um, the gospel is going to advance to the ends of the earth. We'll talk more about that in, the, in a moment. Oh, after Pentecost, the indwelling spirit unites Christians around the world. We have been baptized by one spirit into one body, and we all share that, that unity with Christians all over the world. Um, Satan is in constant opposition to this advance. He's fighting it. He's opposing it. He's trying to deceive people. He is successful at a certain level, but he just can't stop it. Welcome back. Good to see you. He just can't stop it. Uh, he's going to fight it. And I tell you what, that's, a, that's an issue for me as I think about millennialism and amillennialism and all that is that Satan is in some way bound. But, uh, you know, does, is that the binding of, of Revelation 20? That I don't know. I don't think it is. But at any rate, Satan is trying to stop the advance of the gospel. He just can't seem to do it ultimately. Um, and the evil world system is a constant temptation and an opposing force. And we have to face that all the time. The world. 
We're surrounded by it. That's what this present age is. That's what it's like. And that's going to continue. Uh, what I believe, therefore, is that the Great Tribulation, all that, it's going to be all the same stuff, only much more so, that's all. It's not going to be a, a qualitative difference, an entirely different era that we're going to go into. But rather, the kinds of things that the church is going to suffer, that people are going to suffer in the, in the final phase of human history, it's been suffering all along. Persecution and struggles and temptations and you know, anti-Christian governments and all that kind of thing is just going to keep on going. It's just going to really spike there at the end. That's what I think is going on. The age to come, we're not going to talk much about it tonight, um, but we're heading, heading there. It's, the, it's our reward. It's the, it's the eternal state. It's the new heaven and the new earth. It's the new Jerusalem. Um, that's where we're heading. Hebrews 13, 14, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Uh, and Hebrews 6, 5, uh, we have tasted the goodness. Uh, he's talking there about tasting the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's a very provocative phrase. Powers of the age to come. What's that going to be like? I don't know, but it's just going to be incredible. I don't, I don't know how to understand it, but it's going to be a powerful age. Um, I, I believe that Jesus' miracles were signs pointing toward a future world in which there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He doesn't need to do miracles because it's going to be like living in a constant miracle. Um, you, you never need to be healed because you're never going to get hurt. How, is, how can you live a physical life in a physical world and never get hurt? I don't know, but it's, that's the powers of the age to come. We're going to just live in constant strength and energy and all that. That's for another study, not tonight. But that's where we're heading, the age to come. And boy, is it going to be glorious. And by the way, you should do a ton of thinking about it every day. You should meditate. Someday there will be no more death and mourning or crying or pain. You should make yourself happy with those thoughts every day. You really should because it's true. And we should think much about it. That's our inheritance. All right? I like this one, Ephesians 2, uh, 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the in incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I love that word show or demonstrate. So for, for the ages to come, he's going to be showing you how kind he was to you in Christ. And you're thinking, well, isn't that just like a one-time showing? No, 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 it's an eternal showing. He's going to keep on showing you how much kindness he extended to you in Christ. And you're going to just get happier and happier about that. And you're going to learn more and more about that. And it's going to be wonderful. So that's the age to come. All right, but let's get back to the intermediate state. We have been in the age, the present age. We've got the age to come, and we're moving toward the age to come, but we're in the present age. All right, what happens in the meantime? Now we come to the study uh, topic itself. The future of individuals and the world uh, on earth. All right, so we're going to start there. We're going to talk about what God is going to do here from now on. And then the second part, we're going to talk about what he does after death to people. People who die in the faith, who die as believers, and people who don't. People who die outside of Christ. That, so that's what we're going to... But let's first look at what he does here on this earth. What he does uh, both to individuals and to nations here on, on this earth. The first uh, feature I want to talk about is kingdom advance. Actually, I, I, I thought about this. So many of the quotes uh, come from Matthew uh, 24. So let's just read through. I want to read the first 14 verses of Matthew 24, and then we'll get back to my outline. But just take your Bibles and open to Matthew 24. Um, there's just some key passages. If you want to know about eschatology, uh, certainly the whole book of Revelation, you need to study that. And you could study that the rest of your life and still have questions. But uh, Revelation is the textbook on, on eschatology. But this, that's not the only place that we get eschatological passages. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches the rapture. 2 uh, Thessalonians 2 teaches the man of sin or, or the Antichrist. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 teaches the resurrection. Uh, Matthew 24 is what they call the little apocalypse, which just talks so much about the nations, the convulsing of the nations and what God's going to do there. So these are key passages that you just need to know. Um, but Matthew 24... Uh, verses 1 through 14. 
as I try to get there. All right, the context of this, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the week before his crucifixion. He goes to the temple. Um, he gives the sevenfold woe in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, etc. Um, he, he gives that incredible statement, your house has left, left you desolate. We'll come back to that when I talk about the abomination of desolation in due time. Uh, but he's walking out of the temple, and his disciples come up to him, and they're very thrilled and excited about the building. All right? They, they really are. As I said, they're kind of com- country bumpkin types that don't get to the big city often, and so they're just very impressed with Herod's temple. And Jesus at that moment is really not very impressed with Herod's temple. He said, do you see all these things? I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Not a single stone left on top of another. Obviously, this is very troubling to the disciples. Uh, they didn't see it that way. They didn't understand what was yet to come. They didn't see a destruction of the temple in their future, especially with Jesus there, clearly the Messiah. It didn't make much sense, and so they're troubled. And then Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, and they come to him privately, and they ask him this question. Um, In uh, verse uh, 3, 24-3, tell us, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? Okay, multifaceted question, multifaceted answer. And it's unraveling those strands and trying to understand uh, Jesus' answer uh, at, the, at, at multiple levels, it makes Matthew 24 such a marvelous chapter to study. All right, what, when will this happen? What's the this that they're referring to? The disciples are coming and they're saying, when will this happen? What are they talking about? The destruction of the temple. That's what they're thinking with it, the destruction of Jerusalem. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? My sense is that they probably thought that that was one and the same. It was all happening. It's all the same thing. In other words, the temple would be destroyed at the end of the age and, and at his coming and all that. Uh, but Jesus' answer is very complex because, and I told you, it's right in the middle of Matthew 24, one of the key statements, one of the key ways I think about eschatology. As it was, so it will be. It's recapitulation. Something's going to happen, it's going to happen again, and it's going to happen again and again. And then it's going to really happen, and then the end comes, that kind of thing. And so there are these things that happen, they happen again and again, such as the Antichrist or Antichrist. The destruction of Jerusalem is one of those things that just keeps happening, you see. Um, It had happened already a number of times. And now it's going to happen one more time. And it could be, and that's what we'll talk about in due time, that the temple will be rebuilt and the Antichrist will take his place in the temple and set himself up to be God. That's one way to interpret Second Thessalonians 2, that it'll happen all over again. So uh, those are the, the kind of things that we're dealing with here. But in the first, um, let's say from verse uh, 4 through 14, we get a pretty good description of time from, from now until then, which is our topic this evening. In other words, what will life be like for the church from now until the the stuff really starts kicking in that we recognize as eschatology. And so this is a very good summary of the very thing I'm trying to look at here at a macro level for big picture. What is going on in the nations? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear, hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so what he's saying is this is part of the end. We shouldn't discount it. It's rightly uh, a part of eschatology. We should look at this, but he calls it the beginning of birth pains. It's not the actual labor yet. All right? Uh, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
And standing over all of that, I believe, is verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you want to know what's going on from now until then? That, verse 14, is going on. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what is God doing in the world? He is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is advancing. That is, that is what's going on. That is the story from now until then. Susan, yes. That just seems like that may be happening and spurred on by the birth pains. Obviously, the birth pains are tumultuous, difficult events. And he talks about that happening after he talks about the birth pains. I think they are related because I think that many of them are brought on by Satan as he opposes the gospel advance, etc., and certainly the persecution. So they are, they are de- I think they definitely are related. Uh, I think even if you look at the Great Commission, you see this kind of language. Um, you, you, you know it, uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them to obey everything. And surely I am with you always, what does he say? To the end of the age. And so this is what's covering the end of the age. The, the Great Commission work is, is going to cover this whole time. And uh, also, I just love to uh, consider the form of Matthew 24:14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, the Great Commission says, Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, right? Okay, do you notice the grammatical difference between the two? Okay, how would you characterize the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. How, what do you call that? What is that? Huh? It's an imperative. Therefore, it's a, it's a command. It's something that the king wants us to do. Do you see any imperatives in Matthew 24, 14? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Where's the command there? There's no command. What is it then? What do you call it? It's a prophecy. That's exciting, isn't it? It's a prediction. How is Jesus on his predictions? Is he pretty good? I mean, how's it, what's his batting average? Very good. All right, how about 100%? All right, obviously you know that if anyone made a, a false prophecy in the Old Testament, they were a false prophet and they'd be stoned. Jesus is no false prophet. So what is he saying? What is the deal then? What will most certainly happen? What will most certainly happen in Matthew 24, 14? You could say, the end will come. Okay, well, that's at the end of the verse, okay? The end will most certainly come. That is true. But what's going to happen before that? All the nations are going to hear. The gospel is going to be preached. Romans 10 is going to kick in. Uh, Beautiful feet are going to go across mountains and rivers and going to take... By the way, has that been happening? Yeah, for 20 centuries and it's accelerating. It's going faster and faster. Is it reasonable for our church to be interested in that? Yes. (laughs) It's more than just reasonable. It's imperative. That's Matthew 28. All right. Um, But... But it's exciting to be part of that and to see the acceleration. It's really wonderful to see uh, the, the, the unreached people groups getting reached, to see churches getting planted, to actually know people's names who are doing it. I mean, to be praying for them, to actually have, have them come and spend a few months with us and go back and do it some more. I think that's exciting. This is a fulfillment of Jesus' prediction here. It's prophecy. Is it uncertain? Is it iffy? No. This is going to happen. Therefore, you want to invest your life in something that's worthwhile? This is it right here. And then the end will come. So the gospel is going to be preached. This is a sure and certain um, sign of the end, the progress of the gospel. Okay, uh, Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke 24 teaches the uh, same thing. The gospel is going to be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Okay, so the gospel advanced. That's the story of from now until then. And so it's worth a disproportionate amount of time tonight. From, the, from now until then, the kingdom is going to spread. It's going to get bigger. The kingdom is getting bigger and bigger. 
All right, Matt, uh, Daniel chapter 2, I think, teaches this very plainly. I don't know when uh, we'll get to uh, to talk more about, about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the, the statue, but I think the statue represents human governments, empires, the rise and fall of the world. Um, I don't want to talk about the ten toes tonight. I really don't. I mean, in due time, perhaps. Okay, but uh, what ends up happening in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? You know, a stone is cut, up, uh, cut out of a mountain. The stone is cut out, but not by human hands. It strikes the statue that represents the rise and fall of nations. It represents uh, the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire and the, and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. And thus, through them, I believe, uh, represents all subsequent kingdoms that come as well. Whether there's going to be a final phase of the Roman Empire or not, we can discuss that. But definitely that there's going to be some human empires until the Lord returns. That is true. Nations are going to rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's, that's going to happen. So, at, you know... Through all of that, there's going to be this stone that comes and smashes the whole thing. Now, what happens to the stone? Well, after the stone smashes, smashes the statue, it becomes a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. Okay? So, uh, to me, I think that is predicting the growth of the kingdom. The fact that it's to become bigger and bigger. Now, you would look at that and say it's a cataclysmic event that happens all at once and, and it just instantly gets bigger. Except that you learn from the New Testament how Jesus is doing it. Okay? And he's been doing it for 2,000 years. Has the kingdom been advancing for 2,000 years? Yes, it has through, through these uh, quiet means of the preaching of the gospel. And so he told another uh, uh, statement, a parable here. Um, in Matthew 13:33. he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour, or literally hid in crypto is what it is. It's hidden to a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. I love that. It's just, that's one of my favorite parables. It's just so beautiful. I mean, that is, the, to me, the quintessential teaching of Jesus. It's so short. I mean, it's, it's brief, all right? I'm always, I know you don't believe this, but I'm striving for brevity in my teaching. I really, it's, it's, I'm having a hard time achieving Jesus' level of brevity, though, to sum up all of human history and all of my individual history in one little homely kitchen parable is quite astonishing of this few number of words. How, how does it sum up my individual history? How does it sum up world history? Well, it has to do with a, 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 a subtle, uh, silent, hidden permeation of the, of the, of the kingdom until it, until it uh, just takes over everything, all right? Uh, and I think that's what happens. And why is it hidden? Because it's not the top news story. It isn't, it isn't reported in, in the New York Times. X number of churches planted today. You know, uh, Y number of people believed in Christ today. They don't care. They're not interested in those things. They're not believers. And so that thing doesn't matter. But it is the story of history. And so it's permeating. It's, it's moving. And how many people know the name of Jesus now compared to the 120 believers in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? I mean, it's astonishing. They, it's just a, a multitude greater than anyone can count that are looking to Jesus to save them from their sins. It's happened. It's happening. It is the story. It's what's going on. It's so exciting. Also, more about... Well, I, I could do so much about Daniel too. But one, one of the things I love... Okay, about Daniel 2 is that this rock that's cut out, but not by human hands, it's the work of Almighty God. And it becomes a, a mountain, it says, that fills the whole earth. But you learn later uh, in Daniel 2, as he's interpreting it, says uh, the, the rock, look at, look at, it's right there in the middle of page 3. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. The rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Where was the rock cut out of? According to that verse, look at it. Where is it cut out of? A mountain. What does it become? A mountain. 
It's not an accident, okay? To me, it's just like the, the you, know how, you know how they leavened bread? They'd take a little piece from another uh, loaf and then put it in the unleavened and then it would... So I think it's just like the, the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that this is, earth is going to be like heaven. How is it going to be like heaven? We're going to love God. We're going to worship him and do everything he says. And, and, and the new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven uh, at, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And, and, and so therefore, the new heavens and the new earth is all one word for me. It's all just, I think there are distinctions between heaven and earth, but it just, there's a, a oneness there that's so beautiful. It's awesome. I could just talk about that the rest of the time. But that's what's going on, is the spread of the kingdom. It is the story from now until then. If you don't want to waste your life, you need to do that. You need to pray toward it. You need to use your spiritual gifts toward it. You need to think about it. You need to learn more about it. It needs to be the center and focus of your life or you will waste your life. It's that simple. This is what God is doing. All right, anything else happening? Yes, a lot of other things happening from now until then. Various tribulations. We just read about them in Matthew 24. Um, All kinds of things, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. Is that going on? Yes. I mean, look over the last couple of years how many big disasters we've had, all right? Is that new in the last 2,000 years? Is this the first earthquake now? Not at all. There have been earthquakes, lots of them. And so they are somewhat uncertain signs of the end because they've been going on. They've been going on. But he says it's going to happen. It's going to keep on going. So there's going to be all of these tribulations. There's going to be all of these, these um, you know, difficulties for uh, the people on earth. There's also going to be a great increase in wickedness on the earth. Second uh, Timothy uh, 3, 1 through 5 But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. All right, but note when this happens, terrible times in the last days. That's the era we're in now. So this is describing what it's going to be like. But Jesus seems to imply that there's going to be an escalation of wickedness. In Matthew 24, he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So what is the increase of wickedness? It's just more wicked than it was before. It's going to be a greater, a more noteworthy wickedness going on. So that's going to happen from now until then, an ever-increasing wickedness. Um, Also, there's going to be persecutions, as Jesus mentioned uh, in Matthew 24, 9 and 10. You'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Part of the increased wickedness is, is what we could call a general apostasy, a turning away, a falling away from the Christian faith. And uh, that's mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2. We'll, we'll talk about that at the time of the, when we focus in on Antichrist, when we talk about that. But there's this uh, doctrine of the apostasy. That's going to happen. Persecution, again, is that something new in our era? Not at all. Look at the blood of the martyrs that was seed for the church during the Roman era, the first couple of centuries of church life. Uh, where it was advanced by martyrdom. Uh, but we just know that there are far more martyrs, have been far more martyrs in the last hundred years than there were in the first 19 centuries put together. Of course, you could argue that that's um, just uh, because of the great increase of population. But we just know this, that there's been martyrdom all along and it's, it's increasing. It's, it's escalating. And it's just going to continue to be there. Very closely linked to that, of course, is the presence of antichrists. All right? There's going to be antichrists. And there are two types, maybe in some cases both the same individual. Um, but there are um, political antichrists and there are doctrinal antichrists. So political enemies of the church and there are doctrinal enemies of the church. I believe that there's going to be a final antichrist in which that will come together. 
in, in a, a horrible way for the church in which there's going to be a direct attack on Christian doctrine by the one who has the power to put you to death as the king of the earth, so to speak. So I think that all comes together. But the offices, the wicked offices, the satanic offices, sometimes they're separated. It could be some purely secular individual who doesn't care much about theology but wants to keep peace or whatever, and he's just killing Christians for that reason. Now, there's always a theological root to it. He just doesn't believe. But it's not like he's directly espousing a doctrine that's contrary to Christianity in that way. Uh, so antichrists as political enemies, you, you, you see that. Matthew 10, he says, On my account you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. By the way, a lot of similarity between Matthew 10 and Matthew 24. So I think they're talking about the same era and the same persecutions, the same very hurtful betrayals, family members rising up and turning over. And to whom do they turn them over? To whom do they betray? But to the government, uh, to the governing figures. Those are the ones that have the authority to put to death. He says, on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings. So these are governmental leaders. They're never called Antichrist anywhere, but I think it's that kind of idea. I, I use that title because that's what you think of when you think of the Antichrist as a political leader, the beast from the sea, Revelation 13. All I'm saying is that sometimes it happens before that without the title Antichrist being given. The, the uh, idea of Antichrist, however, in 1 John 2 is much more doctrinal. It really has to do with an attack on the doctrine, especially of the incarnation. The spirit of Antichrist is against Christ. It's against the incarnation. It's against his atoning work on the cross, against any of those central Christocentric doctrines, those things that are at the core of our faith. The spirit of Antichrist is to oppose all of that. And so, um, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Uh, 1 John 2, 18 and 19, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. So it, it could be, I think, perhaps a new idea to you, this plural antichrist, but it's right in the Bible. Uh, it's coming right here from 1 John 2. Many antichrists. So you, you just have to be looking for them, and, and, and you, you should understand them primarily, initially, doctrinally. That's why I'm, I'm just very encouraged that you all are here tonight. Um, and I'm encouraged that you have an interest in Christian doctrine because you need to prepare yourself for the increasing wickedness of the world that surrounds you. And the best way you can prepare yourself is spiritually and doctrinally know what the truth is you know jesus says at one point see i've told you ahead of time okay why does he say that because by his telling us ahead of time he's getting us ready for the coming antichrists and final antichrist if we are the final generation we will know him we'll know the antichrist if we are not the final generation we will know antichrists plural in any case the attack is coming and the only way you can prepare yourself is by studying doctrine understanding First uh, John 2, 18 and 19, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the, the Antichrist is coming. So there it is. There is one coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. This is quite poignant. Look at the bottom verse on page 4 here, Acts 20. This is uh, Peter. Uh, sorry, Paul's... Uh, farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And this is what he says. Very, very painful here. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. You see that? 
men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. That very much syncs with 1 John 2. They went out from us because they weren't really of us, but they started with us. They started here in the church and then they got some ideas, some doctrinal innovations and they decided to go a different way and they became antichrists. That's what happened, all right? Or 2 Peter 2, 1, there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So this is what's going to happen. From now until then, the church is going to be under doctrinal attack. And therefore, I mean, as we've talked about plurality of elders, it's the centerpiece of their ministry in the church to maintain and protect the doctrinal life of the church, to protect it against all false attacks, to be able to discern truth from falsehood and expose it and reveal it, etc. All right, what else is going to happen between now and then, both individually and for the church collectively, the power of Almighty God is going to be exerted to keep us safe. Amen, hallelujah. And we need it, don't we? I mean, it's sounding pretty rugged here. Well, it's been rugged. I mean, if your eyes could be opened, and mine too, to see the spiritual realm around us, to see the demonic influence, to see the world as it really is spiritually, to look at it, I don't think you would be able to get up. I think you would be so overwhelmed you'd want to die on the spot. I think it's just our enemies are powerful. They are many. They are intimate. They are right here. And we need the power of God in order to finish this race. We need it individually. And the, and the church as a whole needs it. And praise be to God, it's there. The power of God is available. And so therefore, Ephesians... Um, or Jude, which you're going to hear beautifully, I think, on, on Sunday, Andy Wynn's going to preach on Jude 24 and 25. See, he gets all the blessings. He gets to preach on just two verses. I'm doing whole chapters of Isaiah, and it's just killing me. It's just absolutely overwhelming me. But, but Andy has chosen the better portion, and it will not be taken from him. He's preaching um, Jude 24 and 25 on Sunday, and you want to hear that message. He's going to do a phenomenal job. But look what it says. To him who is able... Just zero in on that word. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior. That's who we're talking about. He's ascribing glory, majesty, dominion, power to the one who can keep us from stumbling. And you must meditate on that. Never think you're keeping yourself from stumbling. Okay? We are called on to guard our steps. We are called on to watch ourselves closely. We're called on to be, be careful that no one deceives us. All of these things are true. But that, it's not on that that any of our security rests. Not at all. It's to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The power of Almighty God exerted on behalf of individual Christians and the church as a whole. God is exerting awesome but invisible power to keep us from falling away. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. By the way, those two things together refer to the coming age, the finish line, our destination, what we're going to get when we die, what we, what we get at the end, the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But now look, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. It will be of no good to us if we can't get there, if we never make it. What good would it be to us to know it was there if we could have made it, but we couldn't make it? And so therefore, it's important for us to know that we will most certainly make it, and we're going to make it by the power of God, His incomparably great power. There is no power like it. That's what omnipotence is about. All power is His. 
And so that power is exerted toward us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. That word like means if you want to understand the power that's at work in your life, look at the resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, that same power is at work in you. And he prays that the Ephesian Christians would know it, that they would know how much power there is at work so that we would be confident that we would not be afraid or harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We're not harassed and helpless, not at all. Left to ourselves, we would be. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be what? Losing, all right? If God pulled away that incomparably great power from an individual Christian, they would go to hell. There's no doubt about it. But rather, there's a dynamic power at work sustaining us, keeping us in Christ until we are out of danger. Out of danger. And we are in great danger. What would you think of a parent that left their child in the median strip of an eight-lane superhighway? Bad parent, right? We are in greater danger than that. Greater danger than that. But God is exerting greater force and protective power than that. All right? We are in great danger. Satan is alive and active. His demons are around us all the time. The world is pulling on us all the time to become idolaters. That's what's happening all the time. But God has this power. And Christ is constantly interceding for us. He's at the right hand of God and interceding for us. Uh, Jesus, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, another translation gives us, or to finish our salvation, to save completely those who come to God uh, through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In other words, the way he's going to finish our salvation is by praying for us. Isn't that something? How many times does Jesus say this? And I will ask the Father and he will give you a counselor. Or all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is very (laughs) Father-centered. Infinitely so. He is Father-centered. And so the best way he can finish his saving work in us is to ask the Father on our behalf. So he is praying to the Father, praying to the Father. And the Father gives the Son everything he asks. And so Jesus is at the right hand of God. And in this way, you and I will be saved to the uttermost. We'll be saved completely. Our salvation will be finished. It's not finished yet. We've still got a ways to go. And so therefore, in order to finish that journey, uh, Jesus is at the right hand of God. And how is, uh, is the Father sustaining us? Well, one, one of the issues is he's sustaining our faith. He is going to sustain your faith until the day you die. From now until you die, you will keep believing in Jesus if you believe in him now. If you believe in him now, you will never stop believing in him. And why? Because Jesus is praying that you won't stop believing. All right? Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. That is the center of Jesus' intercessory ministry for us. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And will it? No. It couldn't have. Why? Because Jesus prayed that it wouldn't. And the Father saw to it that it wouldn't. The same Father that gave the faith sustained it right on through. And that's what it's going to be for you and not just for you, but for a countless multitude greater than anyone can count from every tribe and language and people and nation who themselves also genuinely believe in Jesus. He's going to exert the same power toward them too. And he's going to keep doing that until the end of time. He's going to keep exerting power. And boy, how frustrated is Satan. He can't snatch any of them out of the Father's hand. He just can't get them. So that's what's going to go on until the end. God is meanwhile going to filter our temptations. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he's going to provide a way of escape. Satan's got to go cap in hand in order to tempt you. 
and God will say no to many of those temptations. Um, and those that do come uh, to us through Satan by God's permissive will, uh, he will give us the strength to stand up, to bear up against it. So never say, I couldn't help myself. If that's literally true, then you're not a Christian. Okay? It means you're a slave to sin. That's what you're saying. If you say, I couldn't help myself. There's nothing I could do. I just had to give in. There's nothing I could do. That is just absolutely not true ever of a Christian. All right? So basically, God is going to filter your temptations and he's going to give you a way of escape. All right. And key, God has given you as a Christian an anointing by the Holy Spirit so you can discern truth from falsehood. You can discern it. Okay? Uh, In the middle of the section on the Antichrists, 1 John 2.20, it says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. Isn't that marvelous? Because of that anointing, you're not going to be tricked by the Antichrist. You're going to know what they're doing. And you'll, you'll be able to test those who claim to be apostles but are not and you're going to find them false. All right? Because of the Holy Spirit. Not because you had great pastors and teachers. God will use, use teachers. He will. But it's because you have an anointing that you'll be able to uh, tell. And so therefore, Matthew 24, 45, uh, 24 and 25, sorry, for false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. Is it? It is not possible for the elect to be deceived. They're going to try. Jesus is saying that, but they will fail. Why? Because we have an anointing from the Holy One. We know the truth and we will not be deceived. And then he says, see, I have told you ahead of time. So his prediction of the coming of the Antichrist, his prediction of all the Antichrist and all that helps us. My job, therefore, as a teacher of the Word of God is to make sure you know what he's told you ahead of time. It's of no use to you if you didn't read it. (laughs) So you need to read it. You need to find out what he's told you ahead of time. So be in the word, that's all. And should you stray, God is going to discipline you. He's going to make you uh, uh, feel pain. He's going to take things from you. He's going to hurt you. He's going to make you sick. He's going to discipline you. He's He's going to do that. Why? Because he loves you too much to give you over to sin. And so if you are a true child of God and you're in a certain pattern of sin, he is going to discipline you. Um, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained uh, by it. Therefore, none of the elect will fall away and be lost. It cannot happen. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Christ is not the man who begins building a tower, gets halfway through and finds that he doesn't have enough money to finish it and then is embarrassed in front of all his neighbors. He doesn't do that. What he begins, he finishes. And so he will certainly finish this work. And John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. From now until then, that's what's going on. The gospel of the kingdom is advancing irresistibly. The elect from every tribe and language and people and nation are hearing the gospel by the messengers that God sends them. They are responding by the sovereign power of God, and then he is keeping them by his sovereign power until the day they die. That's what's going on. That is a glorious story. That is the, uh, the triumph of the gospel. That is the centerpiece of everything. And that is your story too, if you're a child of God. All right? So don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your own abilities. Don't trust in your own faith, your own character, how often you come to church, that you're here on a Wednesday night in the summer. I mean, that's laudable. It really is. It's praiseworthy. But don't trust in that. That's not going to save you. What's going to save you is God's keeping power, his power to keep you going. All right. So that's what happens on earth, in the living Okay, what about the dead? Okay, what happens to the dead between now and then? All right, Um, first of all, 
I'm not going to get into all this about Sheol and Hades and paradise and all that. I just don't think we can be overly precise. Uh, some people say that there are different levels of Sheol. There's the Sheol of this. And the, I, a lot of people get way too precise beyond what the scriptures can bear. I do not believe there is a distinction between paradise and heaven. I don't think they're two different places. Some people do. I respect that. I personally don't. Why? Because what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? What did he say? Today you will be, now here's the key phrase, with me in paradise. So wherever paradise, whatever you want to call it, it's where Jesus is. And so I want to be there. Now I tend to call that heaven, but uh, if others want to put it different, you want to call it paradise, that's fine. Whatever you want to call it, Jesus called it paradise, that's fine. But it's with him. And, and so that's where I want to be. If we come to find out that it's called such and such, I don't think any of us will be troubled by that title, all right? We just want to be with Jesus. It's better for me by far to depart and be with him. That's where it is. So I'm not going to be too precise about this. If others would like to get precise and talk about that, I don't want to spend our remaining six minutes on that. Let's move on. What happens um, with believers? Well, at the moment of death, you become unclothed, okay? Unclothed. That's the language of 2 uh, uh, Corinthians 5.4. For while we are in this tent, the tent refers to the body, while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. (laughs) And all the more so as the tent ages, I've noticed. At any rate, um, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He's talking about the body. Now, this is a very important concept. You were meant to have a body. God intended that, to create you with a body. And he intends for you to spend eternity in a body. So the intermediate state is a bit odd. It's a bit off. And Paul calls it unclothed, that you're going to be somewhat naked almost. You know, you're going to be a disembodied spirit. And there's a sense that that's an aberration. It's something, you know, and it's because sin came in and death. And what is death but a separation of the soul from the body. So that's what's going to happen. And so 2 Corinthians 5, 8 uh, is that verse, and KJV gives us absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the soul is separated from the body at death. That's what happens. The body's still there. It's all still there. All the stuff is still there, but the person's not there. They've left the tent of the body. They're gone. They're, it's, they're dead. They're dead. All right? Philippians 1, 23 and 24, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. Depart means depart this world, but it also means depart this body, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So his depart is from the body and the world. So he said, I like to leave my body. I really would. Um, you had the sense that Paul struggled with his body. His body was not, I mean, it was a vehicle of service to the Lord, but he had a thorn in the flesh. He had issues. And so he said, for myself, I would love to depart and, and be with the Lord, all right? <clears throat> Second Peter 1, 13 through 15, Peter uses the same kind of language. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. You think of a tent as, as, as what? What's the difference between a tent and a house? The tent is temporary. So both, both Peter and um, Paul use this language of tent. It's a temporary dwelling. We're not going to be in this body forever. Thank God. All right. You don't want it's, it's it's not a discipline. We're not we're not being punished. You know that death is not a punishment for Christians because Romans 8, 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, for a Christian, death is a blessing. It's a good thing. It's not a punishment. Jesus has taken all of uh, our punishments on himself. 
Um, one could argue that because we're part of the human race and we sin and all that, but I just think all the punishment aspect was put on Jesus, the condemnation on Jesus. For us, rather than death is a, is a doorway into the very presence of God. And, and Paul says, I want it, I'd like it, I desire it. But for you, it's good that I continue in the body. But Peter says, as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Put what aside? Well, the tent of his body. He's going to be departing his tent. He's going to die. All right, so that's what's going to happen. The body, what happens to the body after that? Ooh, uh, you don't want to know. I mean, I don't want to know. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not pretty. It, it decays. It's, it, 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 it's corruption itself. It's disgusting. It goes the way of all the earth, as, as David said. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. It's what happens. 1 Corinthians 15, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. This is talking about resurrection, but we learn about death from it. The body that's sown is perishable. Have you ever heard of perishable goods? You need to refrigerate them, all right? Uh, perishable. The body is perishable. Okay. It is sown in dishonor. Okay. It's a dishonorable process. It's ugly to watch. You don't want to see it. You know, Lord, he's been there four days. There's bound to be a bad odor. It's disgusting. All right. That's what's going to happen. Uh, it is sown in weakness. It is the very picture of weakness. It doesn't do anything. It has stuff done to it by worms and parasites and stuff, but it doesn't do anything. So it's a very picture of weakness and it is a natural body. Um, that is of this present age. That's what's going to happen to your body. Uh, Psalm 49, 14, like sheep, they are destined for the grave and death will feed on them. Uh, their forms will decay in the grave. Um, and Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So the skin will be destroyed but in his flesh you will see God. That's confident in the resurrection. We'll talk about that. Um, the soul is in some way judged or assessed. I have to tell you, I don't know how this works. Um, I, I, obviously, the Lord has to make a distinction between those that die in the Lord and those that don't. Um, but I'd think that judgment day is, is, is in the future at that point. So in some sense, he knows who gets to be with him and who doesn't. Whether that is the moment where the court is seated and the books are open and you give an account for every careless word, I don't think so. But at any rate, in some way, he knows... Who's the rich man and who's Lazarus? Who gets to go where? And so there's some kind of an assessment at that point. The soul is instantly perfected. If it weren't perfected, it couldn't go and be in the presence of the Lord. And so we have to be made like him. Our souls have to be perfected. And you know that our sin issue isn't just physical, but there is also uh, sins of the, of the thoughts and of the emotions and of the inclinations of the will and of the heart, all of that. All of that is going to be purified. First John 3, 2. Uh, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is now we could argue when he appears is referring to the second coming of Christ I do think it is but I think that to see him is to transform ourselves that we will be transformed when we see Christ and furthermore I just don't believe that anything impure can enter into God's presence his eyes are too pure to look on evil he cannot tolerate wrong and so basically at that point Hebrews 12 says it quite directly you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, and look at this, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's a very important phrase. I mean, it's a key phrase for me in my understanding of this. As soon as you die, your spirit is made perfect. And then you can be in the heavenly uh, Jerusalem. You can be with God. 
So that's glorification part one, okay? Glorification part two is the resurrection body. The glorification part one is the spirit instantaneously made perfect. All of the things you are striving to do, all of the habits you're trying to kick, all of the struggle you had, that is gone, gone forever. And for, for the rest of eternity, your spirit will be perfect. You will think like Jesus, love what Jesus loves. You will hate what Jesus hates. You will be totally in sync with the mind of God perfectly we have the mind of christ there it will be perfected it's going to be glorious and uh, by the way you've come to a place where there's other spirits that's already happened to the spirits of righteous men made perfect they're already there so it's glorious the soul will be welcomed you'll be welcomed by god second uh, peter 1 10 11 therefore my brothers be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure for if you do these things you will never fall and look at this you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our lord and savior jesus christ a rich welcome who in this room deserves one of those? No one. And yet he's going to give, by faith in Christ, give to us a rich welcome. The verses that precede this are well worth studying. You should be diligent to add to your faith goodness and the goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance. You should be growing in godliness. But you're not going to stand before God on how well you did that. You're not, because you didn't do it very well compared to heaven anyway. You might have done it very well compared to me but I'm not the standard Jesus is. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's not on that basis at all. It's on the basis of the fact that you are his child. He's going to perfect you and you'll receive a rich welcome into heaven. That's a sweet thing. All of this should tend to make you not afraid to die, by the way. It's true. You should not be afraid as a Christian to die. You may be afraid reasonably so of the process of dying, but don't be afraid because when the moment comes and it's almost time for you to depart, this is what you're going to depart into. You'll be known by God because the Lord knows those who are his. He's going to welcome you in. He's going to perfect your spirit. Your body's going to go the way of all the earth. Don't worry about it. He knows what to do with that too. We'll get to that in due time. He will resurrect it. But uh, you're going to be in the presence of God. And uh, as Jesus said. Big body down here, my face and stuff and all of that. But when we get up there, we're going to have a glorious body. Absolutely. We will have a glorious body at the resurrection. I'm just not there in our outline yet, <laughs> okay, but we'll get there. It's coming. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I absolutely believe it. Um, we will be in the presence of God and of Christ at that Mount Zion, that heavenly Jerusalem. We're going to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Um, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. We are going to be in active, conscious fellowship with God. So the, the last section of this paper, uh, I talk about faulty doctrines, and, and perhaps we'll get to that next week. Maybe we'll just borrow a little time next week. But the, the doctrine of soul sleep and all that, it just doesn't fit, okay? Because you're going to be in active, conscious fellowship with God. You're going to be in the presence of God. And you'll be aware of earthly events. Revelation 6, the martyrs that were beheaded during that time, uh, they're up there and they're saying, how long until the people who killed us get what they deserve? <laughs> you know, they're calling for revenge. Oh, Lord, how long? <laughs> Do something. And, uh, you know, in the book of Revelation, God intends to do something <laughs> big time. I mean, he's and, and they're just told to wait a little while. And, and the whole thing in Revelation is that the inhabitants of heaven know what's going on on earth. There's silence in heaven for the space of half an hour when, when something happens. Um, in Revelation 18, when Babylon is thrown down, uh, heaven is called on to rejoice. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Well, if heaven didn't know, it's like, why are we rejoicing? Because God is so holy. So No, no, no. It's because Babylon has been thrown down. So they are tracking earthly events. They're, they're up on it. They know what's happening. All right, now, you may at that point want to bring in this verse, which I wouldn't, but I'm going to mention it. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, people use that to talk about the spirits of the departed, you know. 
Um, I don't look on it that way, kind of like the fireflies in the summer. They're surrounding us all the time. But I do think that they are aware of what's happening. I just don't think that's the best interpretation of that verse. I think the author to Hebrews has surrounded his readers with the cloud of witnesses by talking about Old Testament saints and the way they exerted faith. That's all. Uh, Abel, though being dead, still he speaks. How does he speak? In the pages of Scripture. That's the best interpretation. But that doesn't mean I don't think that the departed saints are aware of what's happening on earth. I think they are. I think they are aware. And they are waiting. What are they waiting for? The departed, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for the end of redemptive history when they will get their resurrection bodies. They're not done being saved. Now, there's no imperfection in them. They're they're holy, but they're not done with the salvation plan of God because God intends that they spend eternity in a resurrection body. And so they're waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for us. They're waiting for all the elect because they couldn't be made perfect by themselves. They had to be made perfect together, all together. And so we all get our resurrection bodies together. And so it says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. God had planned something better for us, so only together with us would they be made perfect. You see that? So they're going to be made perfect together with all of the others. And so we're going to receive our resurrection body. What else are they doing? They're worshiping God. They're spending time worshiping God, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. What happens to unbelievers? I think we just need to stop here. We'll probably we'll pick this up next time. There's no way I can hurry through this. We're already three or four or five minutes over. So let's just do this next time, okay? I don't care what that thing says on that chart. What are we doing next time? I don't know. Is it the millennium? Maybe I'll have one more week to figure the millennium out. That's good. You know, continue to work on that. See, that's all. I'm just stalling. I'm not stalling. I'm, when I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. All right? But uh, we'll start next week with what happens to unbelievers when they die in the intermediate state. Let's close in prayer. <coughs> Father, we thank you for tonight's study. We thank you for the things that we have begun to learn about it. Um, I just want to thank you right now for your incomparably great power which is at work in us who believe. Lord, I, I rely on that power. I, I can't save myself. I can't finish my own salvation race or journey. I need your help. And all of my brothers and sisters, we need your help. And therefore, I pray that you would continue to exert your saving power toward us until we are at last perfected. Father, keep us safe from the devil and all of his schemes. Oh, Lord, keep our minds fresh and clear and able to understand and receive right doctrine. Help us to be discerning toward false doctrine. Help us to immerse our minds in the truths of the word of God. Help us to be men and women of, of prayer. Um, help us to care for each other and strengthen uh, the, the, the weak knees and the feeble arms that give way. Help us to help each other in this uh, salvation journey. But help us above all to realize that it's your, your incomparably great power which is holding on to us so that we will not be lost. We trust in that. We ask that you continue to save us, O Lord, and work in us. Thank you for this time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.